Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the White House Correspondents Association podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 30th, 2018. I am Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who, like our new CDC director, has just requested a pay cut and is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, Frank, it's been a, it's been a couple of weeks since we got to chat, but... Uh... Exciting times all around. I'm actually in in a in one city for an entire week this week, which is a nice change. Excellent, and I did see all of the great publicity about your uh, DC sojourns, so that was looked fantastic. Yes, we published our preliminary report on legal and policy barriers. Uh, to effective opioid interventions, which we were doing as as part of uh, my university's uh, grand challenge to try and make a dent in the the opioid epidemic. And then we were privileged to sort of take our report on the road to DC and present it to members of the Indiana congressional delegation and uh, also to their healthcare policy staffs. So it was uh, it was quite something, and that was punctuated by a visit to uh, Northeastern uh, to visit our good friend Leo Boletsky and uh, uh, his awesome conference on uh, opioids and other diseases of despair, which, as you know, led to the two live pods that we managed to get out over the last two weeks. So it's uh, it's been quite a uh, a few days and quite a few hours spent in airports. But uh, well, welcome uh, home. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> thank goodness indeed. Well, welcome home is uh, a good introduction to our next guest, Thad Pope, professor of law, director of the Health Law Institute at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. There he teaches health law, bioethics, torts, medical law at the end of life, and of course. Most of our listeners are well aware of his prodigious scholarly output that is featured in leading medical journals, bioethics journals, and law reviews. Professor Pope also co-authors the definitive treatise, The Right to Die, The Law of End-of-Life Decision-Making, and he runs the Medical Futility blog. Thad, it's so great to have you back. The last time you were on was episode eight, which is 131 shows ago, (laughs) and almost exactly three years. So... Finally, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Nick and Frank. I, I wonder if I did something wrong. It's been so long. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. We just, I mean, we were just waiting. We were waiting for the end of the Jaheim of Math case. And, you know, right. it still has not happened. So there we go. But No, yes. the, uh, it's almost a uh, belated thanks to... All of you who are on those first ten or fifteen shows, where we were, <laughs> we were literally building the airplane as we were taking off. <laughs> and uh, uh, welcome back, indeed. Thank you. There's some pretty interesting stories out there uh, that uh, link together, though perhaps not as closely linked as as the popular press uh, might uh, have it. One from the U.S. and one from the U.K. dealing with end of life matters and. We start with the Jahai McMath story, which uh, really is uh, quite astonishing. There's a Duke transplantation medical error that 60 Minutes did a show on. It must be a decade ago now. And it literally is 20 minutes of video that I can show my students that raises almost every healthcare quality issue there is. It's it's like an, a bonanza. 
And I was reminded of that as I read the New Yorker story about Jahai McMath and the huge number of issues that were raised in that story that seem raised legally and ethically by uh, what went on. And uh, I wondered that perhaps a a good place to start would just be a sort of a factual statement uh, of the sort of the timeline in the story before we start sort of uh, a deeper dive into some of uh, the very serious uh, and difficult issues. I, I agree it is a bonanza of legal issues. Factually, uh, the case really starts in December of 2013. She goes in, she's 13 years old, goes into hospital in Oakland, California for a tonsillectomy and post-operatively starts to bleed from the site where some uh, tissue has been uh, cut away and eventually loses her airway and for such a period of time that she suffered an anoxic brain injury that was then a few days later uh, diagnosed as being brain dead, which in California, as in every other state, is legally death. Parents didn't accept that diagnosis, uh, filed a number of actions in state and federal court, lost those actions, and basically reached a settlement, though, with the hospital such that a death certificate was issued, but they could take uh, Jahai uh, out of the hospital. They did that, transported her to New Jersey, this is back in December 2013, where she's been sustained with mechanical ventilation ever since for four and a half years. So that, that those are the basic facts. What the other key stage, uh, factually, is that in uh, 2015, the family filed a medical malpractice lawsuit against the hospital, which, of course, alleging that she shouldn't have died after a tonsillectomy, there was some medical malpractice. Well, as an element, or in fact, the most significant element of damages sought in the medical malpractice action were future medical expenses. And of course, dead people don't have medical expenses. So it it became clear that they were seeking to relitigate the question about whether she is alive or dead. And that's and that that question uh, is still very much alive, no pun intended, very much alive in the ongoing litigation. And, and that, I think, is one of the most interesting questions in the case, is she may actually be able to prove, at least to a jury, that she is alive, even though she was correctly diagnosed as dead back in December 2013. That's never happened before in U.S. or even human history. So that's, that's That's what potentially makes this case very interesting. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, the definition of death that applies in all 50 states and D.C. is the same. It just there the... Some, something that people sometimes get confused about is that there are two different forms of evidence that will uh, prove uh, the state of the person. Could you just run that bias to make sure we are, we're clear on, at least before this case, uh, what the definition of death is? Good question. So almost every state has adopted either literally or practically the uniform determination of death. So this is one of the uniform laws like the UCC and Uniform Anatomical Gift Act that was put out by the Uniform Law Commission and then adopted by the several legislatures. So, we, this, and this was a very a very successful one as compared to some other uniform acts because you basically have a 50, 50 plus jurisdiction adoption. And the UDDA, the Uniform Determination of Death Act, says that you are dead legally if either you suffer complete cessation of all functions of the entire brain or complete irreversible cessation of cardiopulmonary 
binary function. So if either of those happens, you're dead. So if you're determined dead on the first prong, complete and irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, or what's sometimes referred to as uh, being determined dead on neurological criteria, you your, your heart can still be beating because you, it might be sustained by a mechanical ventilator. But because you, you only need to satisfy one of the two prongs, you are legally dead, even though your heart is still beating because you satisfy the brain death prong. It's either or. The only difference or the only real lack of uniformity across the United States is that in New Jersey, if you have a religious objection to being declared dead on neurological criteria, then legally, New Jersey clinicians may only declare you dead on cardiopulmonary criteria. So that's, that's it's, the law is a little bit different in New Jersey. So there's really only one prong of the, of the determination of death in New Jersey if you have a religious objection to brain death. Just to get into a little bit more detail on the unprecedented nature of the case, it seems as though, I guess at the beginning of the McMath's, you know, very tragic saga, most of the bioethical consensus would be that a person in Jahai's condition would expire within days or weeks. Is is that true? And so is this sort of a case that has upended not merely bioethical or medical consent or bioethical or legal consensus, but also a medical consensus about the uh, ability for a body to be maintained with irreversible brain damage? Frank, that's a good question. So the reason I think we're seeing more conflicts, and so the Jahai McMath case is just one of many conflicts that is uh, hitting courts across the United States, and there's even a far bigger number of conflicts in ICUs across the United States. Um, And I think one reason why brain death as a diagnostic category is more challenged today than it was five or 10 years ago is because of what you've just identified, which is now it matters or now it makes more of a difference. In in the past, um, cardiopulmonary death would quickly follow brain death. So the fact that there um, that that we don't uh, believe that brain death is really death um, didn't matter because the patient would so quickly reach cardiopulmonary death. Um, as Jahai McMath herself shows, um, for, she's she's now four and a half years after brain death, and and still her body is doing lots of things. Um, so that 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 um, that's that's point one, and then. Point two is um, th- that gives a lot of people pause because the things that the body is still doing, J- Jahai's body is still doing, and there's been other people who have had long term survival, and I hesitate to use that word, but long term being sustained after brain death, um, they, they can, for example, dead pregnant women can gestate a fetus. The body can still regulate temperature. The body can still mount a, a, a response to to a, to a stress. Um, so there's lots of things that the body is still doing, and therefore at least some of these things uh, scientists think are mediated by the brain. So therefore, if the definition of death is the complete and irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, then it appears that's not what clinicians are measuring because even brain dead people, their brains still do things. The uh, the clarity of, of the definition, or at least once once it's, it's been assigned to the patient, uh, is, is remarkably well illustrated here. I mean, for a start, I'm guessing she would not still be uh, quote alive if the if a physician at the hospital hadn't uh, traked her uh, so that she could uh, get uh, food and um, and uh, uh, moisture and and so on. But the very performance of that procedure uh, caused, according to the New Yorker piece, anyway, 
considerable criticism in the hospital where that occurred because it was viewed as operating on a dead person. Um, it was violating a corpse to an extent. And then later we get another kind of view of that when we have this extraordinary picture of this family clustered around this small bed in a New Jersey apartment and the cops are called because of someone had complained about there being a a corpse, a dead person on the property, and that creating a public health issue. Um, uh, this is this is really very new territory. Yes, and and on the point about that, that clinicians find it sort of outside their mission and standard of care to operate on a corpse. In fact, that's exactly what Children's Hospital or now UCSF Children's argued back in 2013, and in fact they won that. So they 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 the family wanted them to do the trait. They didn't want to do the trait, and the court refused to order them to do the trach. So that happened after the transfer. So that that did not happen. Um, right, at, that at, was at St. Peter's, right? Right, that was, at a, that was at a willing hospital. So the transfer was made to that hospital specifically because they were willing to provide the interventions that the family wanted. That's why that was the, that was why that was the hospital to which she was transported. Because absolutely, legally, in the state of California, and according to the, all the medical standards, she was dead. Um, now, interestingly... In New Jersey, there's an argument that she's not dead merely because of the fact that she crossed the Delaware River, um, and that's because of this of the law being different in New Jersey. Um, the family has suggested that they may have a religious or at least a moral objection to brain death. And again, according this has been the law for decades in New Jersey. If you have a religious objection to brain death, then you can't be dead on brain death criteria. She doesn't satisfy cardiopulmonary criteria. Her heart is still beating. So there, at least there's an argument that at least legally she's not dead in New Jersey, even though if she went back to California this afternoon, she would be dead in California. And so here's an area where I want to get into the balance of private conscience and public funds. So I know that in the New Yorker story, they mentioned that the family had been bankrupted or that they had uh, experienced severe financial distress thanks to all of the need to, I think, for the mother to quit work, uh, to look after um, the the Jahai. Um, and is there are there any backstops here with respect to public funding, say in Medicaid for Medicaid? Because there there is this very interesting uh, Albert Brooks novel called 2030, and it was sort of a Pete Peterson inspired fiction that imagined a future where everyone on Medicare insisted on all um, extraordinary means being taken to keep them alive indefinitely, and that that essentially bankrupted the U.S. and led it to have to uh, give up half of a major city to China to pay for this uh, this care. It's sort of a bizarre book, but in any event, um, I, it just seems as though in situations like this, um, can Medicaid refuse to cover the type of treatment being demanded here? Or is the fact that the state recognizes the status of the body as living enough to trigger eligibility for public funds? Well, first of all, Frank, uh, thanks for the tip on that book. I'm going to have to read that. I mean, <laughs> frankly, I think we're already there. 
Medicare, I think that's exactly what's happening, right? I mean, Medicare, <laughs> and well, we'll go, well, we can come back to that. I mean, I, I think that, that book is no longer fiction. Um, on, 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 on the, uh, Jahai case, well, first of all, no, no health, no health insurance company anywhere is going to pay for the treatment of dead, uh, of corpses, right? That's, that's, they, they, that's not in anybody's contract and there's no statutory duty to do that either, right? Um, be, now in New Jersey, they're not dead. Um, so it's not like we're saying you have to pay for a dead person. They're, she's not, the argument is that she's not dead in New Jersey and therefore whatever your duties to pay are still in force. Um, and that's, and that's, that's a judgment that was, you know, made by the democratically elected representatives in New Jersey. Um, and in fact, it's New Jersey Medicaid that is paying for this right now. Um, I, I actually don't think that's an appropriate expenditure because the law only allows you to opt out or have an exemption from brain death if you have a religious, religious objection to brain death. And there's no evidence that Jahai had such an objection, right? Or that she ever really thought about brain death um, or that she was a, a follower of any religion that had a tenet opposed to brain death. Um, and therefore, um, I don't think they qualify for the exemption in New Jersey. So uh, I don't think that New Jersey Medicaid is legally obligated uh, to be paying for the care that she's been receiving these past two years. Um, but but why are they doing it? That I, I agree that maybe that's not a prudent expenditure of, of scarce Medicaid dollars. I mean, the entire situation also, and I'm sorry to backtrack, but I just wanted to think just for us, I know in law so often we can go into the legal triggers and categorizations and consequences very quickly. But just to tarry a bit in the metaphysical, it seems as though a lot of times in the literature on determination of death, there are neurologists and others that are really cautious about saying like, I mean, and it seems like when I teach this, there's this simultaneously, there's caution among the neurologists against saying things like, well, the person's a vegetable. They're, they're, it's a persistent, perpetual vegetative state. It'll never end. Um, there's no hope. Seems as though there's there's that caution. But then on the other hand, there's another set of materials where um, hospitals are urged to use language that is essentially specifically designed to give the um, family the sense that everything has been done. And I'm wondering is, do you think that there were particular actors here that gave false hope or otherwise acted in a way that was unethical given what we know about the nature of the condition of McMath? I want to be clear since you raised this. Um, PVS or persistent vegetative state is is a different diagnostic category from brain death. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, yes. <laughs> well, I just want to, and I know yes, you yes. know, I just want, I guess I should want to clarify for the, the listeners, right? So you basically, you're, all of your higher brain death, or your higher brain functions are lost, you know, ability to communicate and, and, and think, but your brain stem, the part that, co- that controls more basic functions like breathing um, and, and things like that, that's still operating. So these people can never interact with the world. Okay. So PVS has itself come under a lot of challenge because the diagnostic accuracy is low, meaning people diagnosed as PVS later have a higher level of functioning um, than, and we thought that it was irreversible. So you're absolutely right to say that people, neurologists are afraid to definitively say that somebody is in a PVS state. Brain death, in contrast, was something that was thought to be more definitive, thought to be more of a bright line um, so that once once they're dead, they're dead. Um, and that's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Um, two things. One is it's not clear that the brain death line is as sharp as we used to think it was. Um, secondly, uh, assuming it is relatively clear and bright of a line, did people suggest to the family that it wasn't? Um, I don't know that. Um, definitely 
ultimately the New Jersey clinicians that are, were willing to treat Jahai um, at least said that or at least conveyed that by their actions in being willing to treat her. Um, and I don't know exactly what they said to the family, but the, the California clinicians uh, definitely said there's absolutely no hope. You know, from once you're brain dead, you're dead and there's no hope whatsoever. I think that, I think, yes, the answer to your question is somebody led them to believe that brain death is not, is not as definitive. It's not a scientific truth. It's a value judgment that, that the medical profession has made. And we, we could, we could draw the line somewhere else. It's not a scientific truth that's been discovered. It's a value judgment that's been imposed and you may have a different value judgment. So don't let them impose it upon you. Well, I think we could all relate to the idea of, of a family being told that a loved one is dead when that person still has warm skin and is breathing. The the somewhat uh, cold statement that there is brain death here, um, you could see being difficult for those folks to, to take, um, even though in most cases the families do. At first glance, I thought this case just was, you know, Shivo being played out again, where essentially the evidence is very strong that there is death. It's it's almost impossible to, to disagree with. And instead, what we're seeing is sort of a culture war leveraging of the case, like we saw in Shiva. But at least from the New Yorker piece, there do appear to be, from the New Jersey uh, clinicians, if we believe them, some differences, some issues with regard to the extent of the brain death. Um, and I guess my question, that is. Is this case or case or are cases like this going to actually impact the definition of death, at least the, the brain standard, the entire brain standard of death? Or uh, do you think this is just an outlier? It's a great question. So first, um, I th in Chiavo, right, that was a live controversy about whether or not to withhold or whether or not to withdraw her feeding tube, right? So the husband wanted to withdraw, her parents did not. You know, so there's a lot, there's a, there's a, a live case in controversy. Um, here, there's, it's only about money, right? There's no actual tangible action, right? The current healthcare providers in New Jersey are perfectly happy to provide the treatment, right? So you don't have a conflict um, between the family about what to do with the clinicians or, or anybody else. It's, it's, just the medical malpractice action. It's just about the money. Um, now, to get the big money in this case, they need to prove that she's alive, right? It, it changes the value of the medical malpractice action by probably 10 or $12 million. So there's a, in fact, the case has been bifurcated. So the medical malpractice part of the case, whether or not there was actually negligence by the providers in San Francisco, that's for the second part of the case. The, the first trial in the bifurcated trial is going to be on on whether or not the way in which clinicians measure brain death satisfies the Uniform Determination of Death Act. So it it's absolutely front and center, squarely in the target uh, scope of in this case, which is the statute seems to be more demanding and more categorical than the standards. And there's two sets of standards out there. One is by the American Academy of Neurology for adults, and the other is by the American Academy of Pediatrics for 
for children. By the time this case goes to the first trial in February, Jahai will be 18, so she'll be an adult. But the basic gist of it is the statute uses very categorical language, complete cessation of all functions of the entire brain. Those are categorical and strong adjectives uh, used in that brief statute. And the clinical criteria used to measure brain death aren't quite as demanding as the adjectives in the statute seem to seem to require. So to answer your question, if they win this first trial, that suggests, I think it will open a door. I think there'll be more people that will challenge brain death and, and, to, and it will expose the fact, and it's probably true, that we aren't, that's not what we're measuring. We're not really measuring what the Uniform Determination of Death Act requires us to measure. That's a big deal because, well, for one thing, we have something called the dead donor rule in the United States, which means we don't take organs, or at least we don't take most organs from people until they're dead. And usually it's from brain death. Like 8,000 or 8,500 of the uh, cadaveric organs taken last year were from people determined dead on brain death criteria. If this very high profile case shows that brain death isn't really death, then that could have a significant impact on the organ donation rate. So, And I think that may be one of the biggest impacts of or ne probably negative impacts of this case. Are there any positive impacts of the case? Or do you think this is just a situation that is tragic? Is there anything positive coming out of this? Well, it depends. If you're, if you're somebody who likes clarity in the law, then I think that's a positive. So many people like Bob Trug, head of uh, medical ethics at Harvard, you know, has long called this a legal fiction. It's kind of like how he, he compares it to blindness, right? You can be legally blind and still have some sight, right? So you're not really blind. And he thinks that this is maybe like that, where we call you dead, but you're not really, you're not really dead. And so therefore, one one positive from the case would be it would, it would help clarify the law and we wouldn't have this gap between the medical criteria for death and the legal criteria for death. It was, it's going to push somebody, either we're going to have to change the way we measure death clinically, or the legislature is going to have to change the statute. But it seems this case might help nudge one or either of those parties to help narrow the gap. I don't know whether this qualifies, Frank, as a positive, but certainly some of the pieces that are being published in the ethical literature, I'm thinking particularly of a piece by Dr. Janaid Nabi in uh, the Hastings Center uh, report does use this case as a jumping off point to discuss empathy and relationships between physicians and families in these difficult uh, uh, situations. And there is sort of this sense, at least maybe before the, the damages issues that start, uh, starts having a life of its own again, sorry for the, for the bad pun, that there was a, there were some moments that maybe illustrated the problems of racial disparities, maybe uh, a lack of empathy in in a hospital, a lack of uh, communication, a lack of transparency. Um, and at least some of those issues, people are using this case as a as a sort of case study to start working their way through. Uh, Nick, that's a good observation. I, so I guess I was very focused on the brain death aspect of the case. But if you look at the whole case, the underlying medical malpractice is it does make it a good case for 
for teaching that that sort of issue. The allegations are such that they were complaining to the staff, to the nurses, that she was bleeding and they ignored them and they used, uh, at least allegedly, some insensitive language in communicating with the family. And so there are definitely empirical studies showing that the responsiveness of clinicians to African-American patients versus white patients is slower. And and again, I don't know if that was, you know, that, that part of the case hasn't been tried yet, but it's definitely in the complaint and it's definitely in some of the discovery um, that the reason she's dead or allegedly dead um, is is because of rape is because of racial disparity in the treatment that was provided post-operatively. Yeah, I do think that that was one of the most important elements of the story that doesn't why the New Yorker uh, story is so powerful is because you know I think before it there was I think inadequate reporting or a focus on the disparities angle the inability for the hospital or it's 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 uh, insensitivity you know at least according to the the McMaths uh, in the wake of you know what must have been just a horrific experience in terms of losing a child during what seemed like routine uh, outpatient surgery. So, I mean, in terms of, uh, I just wanted to make a transition now to a case that is of more recent vintage and has recent and uh, has been igniting a real firestorm, at least among cultural conservatives in uh, the U.S. and Great Britain, and that's the Alfie Evans case. And I was wondering, uh, Thad, if you might be able to comment on that case and just give us a sense of does it illuminate anything beyond what we were just talking about and and either cross-nationally or in terms of divergent physical scenarios. Yeah, I think there's a lot of useful comparative work that could be done across those two cases. Um, it's worth pointing out the, the distinction. So Alfie um, is a baby, or what he's, he's since died a few days ago, but was a, a baby um, at, a, at a hospital in, in Liverpool. And the difference that between that and the Jahai McMath case is there's no current conflict between Jahai and her clinicians. In the Alfie Evans case, uh, he was still a patient at the hospital, but the clinicians determined that um, his ne- he had such a, a devastating neurological condition that there was really nothing that they could do for him. They don't think there's anything left that they can do for Alfie. And in fact, they think it would be wrong, right? Cruel and inappropriate. Uh, to continue curative directed therapies, you know, to try to keep him alive. They think the, the only appropriate thing to do is to provide him comfort measures. And therefore, when the parents, the parents of Alfie said, no, we want you to, you know, keep him alive as long as possible and to try to, you know, f- cure him. Um, and in fact, you know, the clinician said, well, there's, there's nothing we can do. The parents said, well, yeah, but we found a hospital in Italy um, that is willing to try. Um, and so th- this goes through the courts, you know, back, many, many times. And the argument is that look even though if you're if you're not willing to provide the treatment that we want you to provide Alfie then at least let us take him to another hospital that is willing to provide that treatment they really weren't able to do that because the courts had already adjudicated that the treatment that they wanted to give Alfie in Italy would not be in his best interests so literally the parents didn't really have the authority to provide that treatment or, or to facilitate the provision of that treatment to Alfie so it was sort of outside the scope of their parental rights to do so I, this is a really common case, really common type of case, right, where the family is not ready to give up. The family wants the clinicians to deploy all the technology of medicine to keep the patient alive as long as possible. And the clinicians feel this is not within the goals and ends of medicine to do that. Um, In the UK, these cases often turn out the way the Alfie Evans case does, which is the clinicians go to court and they say why they think it's wrong. And the courts overwhelmingly agree and side with the clinicians 
institutions in these cases. So at this point in time, the UK has a very well-developed body of jurisprudence on the rights and duties of clinicians and families in these medical futility conflicts. And despite being five times the size of the UK, we have probably one-tenth as much guidance from our courts and legislatures on what to do in these types of conflicts. Thad, do you give any uh, credence to some of the statements made in the media criticizing the the UK Evans case as characterizing uh, what happened there as a a symptom of having a a single-payer universal coverage uh, government-provided healthcare? I've seen no evidence of that uh, whatsoever. So the two, and there's a lot of ways to debunk that. Um, first, I think we we have a ton of these cases. So we have U.S. clinicians pushing back just in cases just like Alfie Evans all the time in ICUs from coast to coast. And we definitely do not have a single payer system. And and so I think that's counter example one that it, it's it's not causally related. And, and secondly, if you look at the if you look at the Alfie Evans case or last year we had the Charlie Guard case and. We've in the UK has had other cases. When you dig into the cases, there's no evidence that this was pushed top down, right? So some um, NHS administrators called the ICU medical director and said, "What is that kid still doing there?" Right? No evidence of that whatsoever. It, it looks when you look at all these cases, it looks absolutely bottom up. It's the bedside clinicians that just reach the conclusion that what are we doing here for this kid? Um, and then they they move up and try and get buy in from from their hospital that. Look, we don't we don't think what the parents are asking us to do is right. So the, for those two reasons, a the evidence doesn't bear it out. It looks it's driven from the bedside clinicians, not from the administrators. And then secondly, we have just as many cases here in the United States, just like Alfie Evans. It seems as though in these areas, a lot of times, what's driving people is a combination of a folk theory of science and the revival of the very very seriously ill, um, brain dead, PVS, etc. You know, and I will use those terms to denote a very broad spectrum of cases. A, a sense that, you know, well, there's there's always a miracle. There's, there's cases, you know, 20, 40 years ago where someone was in a coma or in PVS or, or just a, everyone had given up on them. And, you know, that seems to be leading a lot of people to be investing a lot of effort, time, hope in what are truly hopeless cases. And one theory of the case would be that, you know, better science scientific education could help people understand and not make the sort of casual um, conflation of the miracle, quote unquote, cases involving certain situations of PBS and their own situation. That's that's one, you know, going forward that we might want this better scientific awareness. And I always remember when I teach this type of stuff in health law class, I mean, the first class is made up of a lot of discussion of the nature of consciousness and the nature of the brain. The second, though, which suggests that there really is not going to be a resolution here, which I think was foreshadowed in Nick's uh, adumbration of the uh, culture wars, is that what we're really seeing here is an effort by some segments of society to say that the body is sacred, that the heart pumping blood and the brain's you know uh, processing heart and, and lung cardiopulmonary function, as long as it's there and as long as there is a body, um, even if it's mechanically uh, catalyzed, um, that that is sacred and that that must be sustained if those who care for that body, that person, insist upon it. And so where I'm trying to wrap wrap this up and sort of put a difficult question to you, I guess, that is, 
do you sense that the controversies here are ultimately going to resolve with better education of parties involved with respect to the nature of consciousness and lives worth living and what state the brain and body is of their loved ones? Or do you think that this is just the thin end of the wedge of a series of culture wars over the sacredness of people in situations where they are unlikely ever to regain consciousness? Okay, that's a great high-level way to end out. So, first, a lot of these cases are probably, as you say, described as miracle cases, but as you know, there are serious limits to prognostication. So, most of the time, the chances aren't zero, they're just close to zero. So, it's not completely crazy that the families are pushing for this uh, for this miracle. It's you know, it's not scientifically impossible, right, that there might be some improvement. But, so some people, though, as you suggest, may be under a misunderstanding about what those chances really are. And absolutely, we could do a better job at education. One of my most favorite projects in health law is to help work on the uh, dissemination of patient decision aids, which are, which are you know, videos or interactive websites, highly graphic tools that present information to patients or to families in a way that's uh, more meaningful um, and helps them better comprehend and digest that information than just talking, you know, to, to the doctor. So I think we can definitely do a better job in education. Right now, the only existing educational literature on brain death, for example, comes from the OPOs, from the organ procurement organizations. And of course, they have, they're perceived as having a bias. So it would be good to have neutral and independent, unbiased patient educational materials. And I also agree with your second point that better education may take care of some of the conflicts, but some of it is not caused by misunderstanding. It's caused by a fundamental value disagreement. In in the past, the only people that had any objection to brain death were the Orthodox Jews, Japanese Shinto, and Buddhists. Um, and now it appears that other people are coming on board and they believe, well, yeah, the body, there's no cognitive function, but that doesn't mean it's there, it's not worth sustaining the body. Um, and so that seems to be a growing sentiment. And moreover, it appears to be on the agenda of some well-funded pro-life advocacy organizations. So I think, I think you used the word culture war. I think, yeah, this is the thin wedge of a broader culture war. And that was The Week in Health law. A big thank you to Professor Pope for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at Thaddeus Pope. That's T-H-A-D-D-E-U-S-P-O-P-E. So many thanks, Thad, and please don't make it three years next time. Thanks for having me. We post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us. Have a legally interesting but healthy week.